All right. So we are continuing uh, in our lessons in church doctrine. And tonight we are going to be uh, kind of going through a bunch of different verses. So I'm just going to keep your Bibles with you because we are on, I think it's part number four on church discipline, part number four. What we're going to look at tonight is the purpose. I, I'll even say maybe purposes of church discipline and because uh, there's, there's many different reasons or th- reasons that we would uh, practice it properly pr- to make sure that we are properly exercising church discipline. Amen. Everybody ready? So some of you are, all right. Stay healthy, amen, as best you can, all right. So the, the purposes of church discipline, number one, number one, and I, will have you, I would have you turn to 1 Timothy, turn to 1 Timothy. Number one would be to preserve the truth, to preserve the truth, okay? So if we look at 1 Timothy chapter, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3, in Paul's writing to Timothy and teaching him what it is to be a pastor and what he needs to be, how he needs to guide his church. And he gets down uh, to verse, uh, let me see if make sure I don't need to, he, he starts talking about deacons a little bit. And then in verse 14, he says, so 1 Timothy 3, chapter, or chapter 3, verse 14 says, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I do tarry long, that's kind of the idea, but if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Okay? The idea there behind pillar and ground, I think you understand what a pillar is. It's not talking about a decorative post. Okay? It's literally a pillar as something that holds up the house. Okay? That holds up what is above it. Okay, and of course, ground meaning both of them having the idea of a foundational thing, the pillar and ground of the truth, meaning that one of the church's duties is to uphold pure doctrine, is to purposefully uphold pure doctrine. Okay, we are the pillar and ground of the truth. In other words, if there's any place that truth ought to be highly preeminent and prevalent would be in the church. Is everybody connecting the dots? Okay. There's only one source for absolute truth outside of what God has put in place for natural laws, and that's the Bible. Okay. Natural laws. What are natural laws? Like gravity. Okay. Uh, To me, uh, there might be an argument on this, but math. uh, Math is the same in any culture. I mean, that's, those, are, those are rules. They're laws that, that are outside, but they're proof of God. What we are to uphold, and, and definitely when Paul teaches Timothy, the idea of truth that he's speaking of here is Bible truth, or specifically probably the gospel, okay? But it's Bible truth. A church is supposed to be a place where you should be able to find truth. Now, I want to I sidestep the church discipline here a little bit. Uh, oh, i got to be careful, because if I... I'll start, I'll start walking on Sunday morning's message, and I don't want to do that, but it might be a little precursor. That, that's why it's so important that we don't gather around the Bible and, and decide, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? Oh, and what does it mean to you? No, that, there's, no, there's no 
There's no absolutes in that. I mean, there might be somebody touching on it, and someone over here touching on it. What does God mean by when what He says? What do the words mean? And if we start leaving what the words mean and what the context is, then we are leaving the truth as God has given it to us and preserved it for us uh, through, the, through the, the scriptures that he has preserved. Uh, so we are to be a pillar. We are to uphold not my opinion, not your opinion, not the opinion of commentators or pastors gone by, but what does God say, what does his word say, and stick with it. I'm telling you, it's interesting, but... One of the things that we stand against, a false doctrine, would be Calvinism. We, do, we are not Calvinists. We reject Calvinism. And that's a many-faceted argument. I don't have time to, to, to lay it all out here. The primary thing that we would argue against with Calvinism is that God predetermines some to go to heaven and some to go to hell. And you know how, you know how we win Calvinists away from Calvinism? By repeating the verses in the Bible. Over and over and over. Well, but yet this, but the Bible says, for God so loved the world that whosoever, literally, that's how Calvinists are won. They're not won by intellectual arguments. They're won by constant repetition of verses in the Bible over and over and over again saying, but the world means the world. You make it mean something different. All means all. You're the one that makes it mean something different. And it's the simplicity of faith and the foundation of Scripture, the truth, upholding the truth, that that corrects people from the error of their ways, including Calvinists. So we are to uphold the truth. So when we get into church discipline, you have to realize that when somebody purposefully is going to choose a doctrine that is, that is against the doctrine that this church holds, and they're going to try to hold it up, and yea, even begin to try to affect other members by that, that is one area we will not allow that. Uh, we are going to step in and say, no, that's not true doctrine. That's not what the Bible teaches. And you need to adjust to what the Bible teaches as we see it here. And uh, if they fail to, then they, they don't need to be in this church trying to stir up and split the church with another doctrine. So this is one of the areas that we are to protect the church is to prevent them from, so from inter- inserting or, uh, or from stopping this church the ability of us to uphold or maintain the truth of the Word of God. So just kind of some ideas there, but while we're right there in 1 Timothy, look at chapter 1. Chapter 1, look at back there at verse 3. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions, Rather, the godly edifying, which is in the faith, so do you see that? Listen, don't listen to false doctrine. Don't have a place for that. So you're right in Timothy. Okay? So turn over just a few pages to the book of Titus. Okay? So you want to go to the right. So go first, and second Timothy, and then Titus. Go to Titus. Titus in chapter 1. Now, why would we need to be worried about this? Verse 9 tells us that we're supposed to be holding fast the faithful word, talking about preachers, as he has been taught. And why is that? Look at verse 10. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they have the circumcision, which is what he would have dealt with, Judaizers at that time. There are many deceivers. So hold to the truth, to the truth. 
While you're in Titus, turn over one, one, cha- one page if you need to, chapter 3, Titus and chapter 3. Again, look at what the Lord says here, or Paul, uh, by the inspiration of God, says to Titus in verse 10. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition, which he's referencing things said before, reject. You hear that? Somebody that comes in and they're, they're presenting a doctrine that is obviously unbiblical, you are to reject them. Reject it. I mean, that's, that's pretty, pretty serious, right? You don't just allow them to hang around and keep influencing, which is interesting because there are certain doctrines amongst the independent Baptists where that's exactly how a church is turned. One guy who sounds really smart and intellectual shows up at the church, really nice, he gets involved, and, and uh, everybody enjoys being around him, and he, he looks like he might be a good Christian, and before long, he is disagreeing with the preacher in private, and, and disagreeing with God's Word in private. I'm, and I, There's two major doctrines that this has been used with in the past, and that's Calvinism and, and Ruckmanism. Have, both these things have been used frequently in this way, to turn churches away from pure doctrine. So the purpose of church discipline, number one, to preserve proper doctrine, to preserve the truth. Okay, number two is to preserve church order. So you're right here in Titus, so go back through the Timothys. We're going to go to 2 Thessalonians. So put it in reverse until you get to 2 Thessalonians. And we're going to go to chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians in chapter 3. Let's look at what the Bible says in chapter 3. All right. And look at verse 6 with me. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. You see that every brother, not, he's not talking about lost people, he's talking about another believer in Christ, a fellow believer who has chosen to walk against the doctrine that is, was held by the church as they were taught. They were to withdraw themselves from him. So again, another purpose of church discipline, and we're kind of in the same thing, but the idea here being not so much doctrine, but somebody who's literally walking disorderly. They're not walking along the order of how... Okay, so a church is, remember we looked at this, is organized. It's Right? Organized. There's, there's a head. Who's that? That's Christ. Christ is the head. And we use this term under-shepherd. It's the only other way to look at it. The Bible uses the term pastor, which is a shepherd term, Okay. So there's a one shepherd, that's Christ, and then there's an under-shepherd. Kind of interesting because the pastor who is also the sheep, okay, he's also a sheep, but he is the one that God has chosen to lead spiritually, and the churches technically should follow his, his lead spiritually unless he himself is caught, caught in sin, and then he be treated like any other member. But there's got to be order for a church to function. Okay? Someone who is constantly causing disorder in the church is a spot where we would say, okay, now hold on, you either get in order with everyone else or it's time for you to move on, okay? Church is organized. So to preserve truth, proper doctrine, to preserve church order, to preserve, number three, church purity. Church purity. So what's the law of rotten apples? If you put one rotten apple in a barrel full of good apples... 
Yeah, you can put as many good apples in there as you want. It's not gonna, they're not going to make the rotten apple good. Everybody here? Okay, one rotten apple will eventually corrupt the rest. The process is never reversed, by the way, uh, in that realm. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you turn to the book of Revelation in chapter 2. I'm going to give you, uh, I'll be reading 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So turn to Revelation in chapter 2. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, when Paul was dealing with the issue there at that church, he said, Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. And they were talking about the, the man who was committing incest, or they're essentially incest. And the church, instead of addressing his sin, was saying, this is so cool. Look how accepting we are. Okay? Look how loving, quote-unquote, we are. And he's like, no, that's not what we do with sin. Sin is a rotten apple, and it must be addressed. Sin must be addressed. You know, what, what do we as humans normally like to do with sin? What do most people do when they, when they I mean, I hate to say it, but even in this world, what do, what do a lot of people do when there's a crime happening right in front of them? Most people do this. They go, did you see that? We all think we'd like to do the right thing, and we should. I believe in, matter of fact, I think about the people in this room. I think a lot of us would stop and help, but in the majority, in the context, it's incredible. Uh, we did one trip through New York City, and I'm pretty sure I passed at least four crimes happening that I could see. I was like, what in the world? I mean, like my jaw, teenager, my jaw hanging on the floor. Like, I can't even believe this. I'm pretty sure that's drugs being passed, and I think they're about to beat that guy. What in the, I mean, all on one street, you know? I couldn't believe it. And that's kind of how, that's kind of how people are. We, we don't stop for trouble. You know, it's the same thing when stuff happens in the church. We always assume someone else is going to do something about it. We always assume that, you know, that there's you know, some other uh, church member, surely the pastor knows or something like that. No, when there's sin, there's sin that needs to be called out, especially public sin, okay? Public sin needs to be dealt with publicly. That is sin, brother, you need to get that right. And if they're not going to get it right, then they're, we start in the process. Well, actually, that's the process of church discipline. The very beginning of that is one brother going to another and saying, this ain't right. This is not right. Okay, let's help keep church purity. So you're in Revelation chapter 2. I need to turn over there real quick. Uh, notice the progression here. We're in the letters to the churches. Okay. So look in verse, we're going to read verses 14 through 16. And then we're going to read a couple more as well. So Revelation in chapter 2, okay? So this is to the church at Pergamos, okay? The church at Pergamos. Verse 14 says, But I have a few things against thee, church at Pergamos, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. We'll go back and read in Numbers, the story of, of Balaam, Numbers 25. Who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of thy mouth. So here we have the problem at Pergamus. The Lord is calling out a few things, saying, Hey, this isn't good. You need to repent. Okay, I have a few things against thee. This is not good. You need to repent. 
Now, let's, and what is it, what? The doctrine of Balaam, okay? So thou hast there some that hold to this doctrine. They're teaching this. So now let's go down to Thyatira because what was essentially a compromise in Pergamos became absolute corruption in Thyatira. So go down to verse uh, 20. Notwithstanding to the church in Thyatira, he writes, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Now remember, Pergamus, he said, you need to repent. And Thyatira, he says, I gave you a chance to, I gave this one particular a chance to repent, and she's not repenting. Okay, verse 22, Behold, I will cast her, into a, cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And of course, it, it keeps going on there. But you see, again, there was what was in Pergamus, there was something developing that was something the Lord said, well, this is not good, this is a sin, you need to repent of this. And over in Thyatira, that same thing had gone to that point and passed. Okay? Uh, listen, we have to address uh, church purity and we cannot allow things that are obvious idolatry, obvious sin to exist within the membership without it being addressed. Amen. Now, if this, is, this gets interesting because um, it has to be something that can be proven, correct? So I'll just, I'll just pause for a second. And uh, I remember this is before I was, I was uh, old enough for my parents to share anything with me whatsoever. Okay, I was still probably, oh, I don't even remember now, maybe seven, eight at the max. You know, so I wasn't privy to some of those, those uh, discussions happen. But I know later, having heard the story, my mom finally told my dad, she said, I don't like what's going on between our pastor and that lady. And my dad looked at her and says, what do you mean? She said, well, I can't prove anything, but the way they're interacting doesn't look good. There's just, it makes, it gives me the heebie-jeebies. It's, it makes me feel like something's going on. And so they just, they both knew that it was just my mom's kind of intuition, so they just filed it away, hoping maybe they were wrong. Well, then next thing you know, my, my mom's sister uh, says to my mom, something's not right there. <laughs> like, yeah. But did you actually see anything? No, can't prove anything. Okay, well, you know, it's, right now it's just us. It's just a thing. Let's just keep it to ourselves. So what do you do? You can't prove anything. It's only in your head. You don't say anything when you think it. It's better not to say anything at all. Well, I think it might be true. I think it might be. It doesn't look good. Well, that's great, but is there anything provable? No. Well, then keep it to yourself. Okay? But enough people got suspicious, and evidently some people saw some things that shouldn't have been happening, and notified the deacons, and shortly thereafter, the deacons uh, caught the, man, the pastor and the woman at a motel room, caught them together, undeniable, you can't deny it now, and he had to retire. So when they caught him, now they've got, there's proof there. Now we, there's something we need to, now we have to address this. This is obvious sin, it's a, especially a sin of a leader, obviously, but it's a church member. They caught him. Uh, more than, it was more than just a suspicion at this point, and it had to be dealt with, and it had to be dealt with publicly. He's the pastor of the church. They were publicly committing sin. 
Okay, they were out in the public uh, committing sin at a motel room, seen by others. And uh, so what do you do with that? Listen, you, you function with these things not on suspicion but on facts. And let me tell you where this starts. Let me tell you where this starts. And even looking back at, at my parents, okay, my mom had a sp- suspicion. She brought it to my dad. Dad didn't see it, and it stayed there, okay? If my dad would have seen it, the proper thing to have done would, would be that he should have went to the pastor at that time and said, this doesn't look good. What's going on? Okay? Why would he do that? What's the three steps of our church discipline? What's the first step? Face to face, brother to brother. That's the very first step. So issues like that, the very first step is the man goes to another man and says, this doesn't look good. What's going on here? This, this does not look, this looks like sin going on. What's happening? Is everything okay here? You hear what I'm saying? There needs to be some face-to-face conversations. Um, and eventually, those things have to be done. And, and even pastors have to be removed. Or, or I should never, if you're committing adultery, you have forfeited your right to pastor. I'm just telling you, you may still be a preacher, but you should, should not pastor. You should, you should resign and should step down. I think the Bible's quite clear on that. Um, how in the world do you tell other people, uh, preach to God's book from them while you're in the, you're in the middle of sin? I, that's just, especially when you've been caught, step down. That's obvious. So, anyways, church purity is a big deal. Church purity is a big deal. Uh, so when there is obvious sin, it needs to be dealt with uh, to preserve church purity. You don't allow sin to remain active inside of a membership. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Okay? I'll just speak to members here, maybe just for those of you who have your own... All of us deal with some private sin. You better be fighting against it. Don't, if you're giving up, you are affecting the rest of us. You must be fighting against it. You must be. By the help of God, by the grace of God, fasting and praying and everything you need to do to give it to God and searching Scripture and begging for God's help and maybe seeking out help outside that, but you've got to fight against it. If you're not and you're actively involved in sin, your sin is not just affecting you. It is affecting other people. It will affect other people. So to preserve church, per, church purity, we don't need to continue down that line. So to, the purpose of church discipline or purpose is to preserve proper doctrine, preserve the truth, to preserve church order, to preserve church purity, okay, and then to preserve church unity. To preserve church unity. It's kind of interesting, but when you study Scripture, we, we talk often about unity amongst the brethren. And, and there, there's a, a fair argument to be brought there, but almost all church passages in the New Testament about unity are not between all believers. Almost all passages about unity are about a church body, the church body getting together in unity. Uh, there are people who we would say are believers, and we are not going to unify with them. We would recognize that they are believers, they're on the way to heaven, and they've got bad doctrine. It's very hard to have unity with that. But in this house, there's no reason there shouldn't be unity. We are gathering around a statement of faith, we're gathering around scripture, we're gathering around principles, even in philosophies in some places. Of course, you know, even if you've got two people together, there's going to be disunity. 
or at least a lack of agreement on stuff because people are people. But we should still be able to function in unity and certainly around doctrine uh, in, in, in a church body. That's, the Lord wants His churches to be fitly joined together. Fitly. In other words, we match. We got that? We need to join together. So uh, turn to Romans chapter 16. Got two verses on this one. Romans in chapter 16. Romans in chapter 16. Now, listen, we have to have room for people to grow, right? Have to have people for room for, for people to grow as new believers, make mistakes, uh, and even for uh, to people to have a messed up paradigms. Paradigm, y'all. Is it, is it too, has it been such a long week? Y'all lost your sense of humor. Everybody here? A paradigm? You know, it's, it's like growing up thinking that uh, one of the songs we sing is about Andy because Andy walks with me, Andy talks with me. And, you know, Andy walks with me on Sunday maybe because he's over there. But my sisters both thought it was about Andy. You know what I'm talking about? And so there's room for someone to have a paradigm thinking that all of Christianity is about this one thing and then some message show up and you're like, hey, wait, that's what that means? So it's not like there's not room for people to grow or for people to have a different idea or for people to uh, maybe have a false idea that eventually gets corrected. But we should be able to function in unity. There's a, church, a church in disunity is a bad thing. Okay? Anyways, let, let me finish here. My, so Romans chapter 16. Okay? Look at verse 17. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, which ye have learned and avoid them trying to avoid disunity, avoid those who are trying to cause disunity. Now look at 1 Corinthians in chapter 1. So you should be, some of you might be on the same page. Go to verse 10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, that, excuse me, I just lost my place, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Again, the call to unity. We could also go to 1225, uh, where all the members, again, fitly joined together there. You know, there are, listen, there are, I heard a great illustration, uh, a preacher that raised all daughters. They had five daughters, and uh, they moved into a larger house so the three oldest could have a nice big room all to themselves, and the two youngest would have a room down there by mom and dad. And he, he is, the, as a preacher, he came home from church late one night. You know, just been there a long time. And he, he opens the door uh, to the girl's bedroom, the younger girl's bedroom, because he, he thinks, I want to kind of say goodnight. And he peeks in, and all five girls are on one bunk, the bottom bunk. All five girls on the same bed, one bunk. They're not separated in two rooms. And he said it was hair and limbs everywhere. It looked like Cousin It. He said, it was really precious. I took my wife. Wife, come look. And look at this. And he said, he said, why was it so wonderful? He said, because it was the first time all day that there had been any unity. And it's kind of true. But, you know, there are churches that are like that. That the only reason they have unity is because everybody's asleep and there's nothing happening. There's unity, but there's no soul winning, there's no outreach. 
There's no power of God. You hear what I'm saying? Listen, unity is a moving forward together in, in support of doctrine, in support of, of goals, in support of heart. There must be no schism. And avoiding, avoiding a severe disagreement or someone who would purposefully cause. I, I have let people leave this church since I've been a pastor who I knew would cause a problem, and I did not bring them back. They were, they were leaving, and I said, thank the Lord, because I'm not going to let you stay here and cause a problem. Okay? We, we don't need someone who's causing to, trying to cause a schism. All right, so to preserve proper doctrine, to preserve church order, to preserve church purity, to preserve church unity, and then to preserve church holiness. Holiness, okay? Well, you might think, doesn't that sound a lot like purity? Well, no, not exactly. So turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. So back up to the Timothys again. So turn right in your Bible. You got to Hebrews, you went too far. That's because that's what I just did. And now I'm back at Philippians. Okay, there we go. So 1 Timothy in chapter 5. To preserve church holiness. Verse 20. Them that sin rebuke before all that others also may fear. Now, this could very likely be speaking about elders here uh, because it follows elders. Uh, It could also be Paul telling Timothy, if, if you've got someone who sins, you need to rebuke them before all. Now, we need to keep that in the general context of Scripture. And if we compare it to Matthew 18, we'll be someone who is a public sinner there needs to be a public rebuke. And is there any example of that uh, in the New Testament? Oh yeah, there's a, there's a really big one. It's in Acts chapter 5, and some of you know it. And the names of the couple is Ananias and Sapphira. Okay? Now believe it or not, they, they, they consorted together privately to commit a sin that was public. What do you think about that? The Holy Spirit revealed them, okay? But they, com- they consorted privately together to commit a sin that was public to lie in front of everybody and say, we sold some property and here's the whole amount. We're giving it to the church because they wanted to look good where in actual fact they'd kept some of it for themselves and they were giving some. Uh, and they didn't, it wasn't them lying to the church. The Bible says they lied to the Holy Spirit, okay? And this is a practice of that, them that sin rebuked before all. And this was... And what does it say here? It says that others also may fear. In other words, have some reverence and respect and have some caution about what they're doing. You don't just, you don't just come into the church and just pretend like, no, your sin's not going to, it's fine, I'll just overlook it. Uh, and by the way, if you think that there's something like that going on in the church, it's not being addressed, come and talk to me about it. Because maybe it is being addressed and you don't know about it and you just, I didn't know you knew about it. Or maybe I don't even know about it. Okay? Or maybe it's, Maybe it's just your suspicion and nothing else. But listen, public sin needs to be publicly rebuked. Which, by the way, if you're going to sin publicly, you should expect from your church what? A public rebuke. Amen? All right. (laughs) Amen. 
there's some things, well, I'll just keep on rolling. But the idea is holiness. We, we can't just go through our church life overlooking sin. That, that does not promote holiness. It doesn't promote holiness in you or the rest of the church. Sin, sin must be rebuked. It, it must be rebuked in your family, and it certainly must be rebuked in a church. If it's a public sin that is sticking out, something that must be pointed out and called out. Um, if, if someone lays a hand on my, some, some guy lays a hand on my daughter or my wife in public, you will hear a public rebuke. Excuse me, get your hand off of my daughter. Excuse me? That's my wife? What do you, what do you, you know, I realize, you understand I'm talking about the context of how that hand is being placed. You know what I'm saying here? There would be a public rebuke. That's not something you hide. It always puzzles me why people would not talk about stuff like that. No. I taught my daughter from, from I taught both of my daughters. I might need to work with her a little bit more. But some, some kid comes up and touches you where you're not supposed to be touched. You smack the fire out of him. Right there in front of God as hard as you possibly can. And you say loud, don't touch me. Why? It's a public sin. Publicly rebuke. I'm, I'm using that as an example. We, we, you all understand that, don't you? You understand that. But I want you to consider that this is the bride of Christ. This is the bride of Christ. And there's some purity that needs to be kept. And if the devil's going to get in and put his hands on God's people, there needs to be a public rebuke that says, excuse me, that's not right. That's not how we act or function here. I have been in churches, uh, and I still to this day have wondered myself how I may personally respond to this. But where, you know, there was somebody in the back, they, they raised their hands a little bit. Listen, different cultures, there's some people that raise their hands, so I've got room for some of that. Um, and then it turned into somebody talking in tongues in an independent Baptist church service. And the pastor said, excuse me, uh, we're not that kind of church. We, we don't do that. We don't believe in that here. If you want to do that, you might have to go to another church, but we'd invite you to stay, but we're, you're not going to be doing that while you're here. And I've had that happen twice while I've been in a service where a pastor stopped the whole thing and said, excuse me, no, we're not doing that. I got room for people being a little bit more vocal than normal, okay? Uh, I, I, I think I've told you before, but we're in evangelism. Uh, the preacher was preaching, we're up here singing, and, and right in this section right here of the church, was, uh, they brought in, a, they bust in a bunch of people from a home where it was, uh, they were all functioning people, but you know, they, were, they weren't all together, Okay? And there was a there was a kid there was a guy over there. He you're preaching away, and he'd be going, uh huh. I mean that loud. That's right. Uh huh. Yeah. And I can't even do it. He would do this. Why sure? I can't even get my voice as high. Why sure? Really loud. And it's really hard when you're not used to that to try to keep preaching without going. Okay. But. He was enjoying the message. I don't have a problem with that. There's different cultures. Idaho's a little bit more sedate. You go further in the southeast, it's less sedate. Uh, you go over into the Minnesota area, you just wonder if there's anything happened at all. You know, are they alive out there? Do we need to call the doctor? I mean, it's amazing. So there's room for differences of that. You know what I'm talking about? There's room for differences of that. But, you know, we're not going to allow someone to come in, especially in the church service or the church body, and start trying to tear apart the holiness that we believe this church, this church te- believes the Bible teaches quite clearly. 
Amen. But the Bible teaches. I say we believe. The Bible teaches it, and we believe it. Amen. All right. So, to preserve the truth, proper doctrine, to preserve church order, to preserve church purity, to preserve church unity, to preserve church holiness, and last of all, not least of all, we're going to cover this now, to preserve the sinning member. To preserve the sinning member. So go to Galatians in chapter 6. So if you're still in 1 Timothy, just back to the left a little bit. Some of you may already know where we're going with this one. Galatians in chapter 6. And this is kind of what we've been repeating all along this process, but Galatians in chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Do you see that again? Restore. One of the, the, one of the primary purposes of church discipline is the restoration of the brother who has sinned. Again, it's not the, it's not the um, eradication of that brother. It's not the embarrassment of that brother. It's not self-righteous judgment of that brother. Okay, The whole purpose for the whole thing is the restoration of the brother. That does not mean we don't call sin, sin. You cannot, you know, like anything else, you cannot fix a problem in the body until it's identified. And you have to call it what it is. You don't... I mean, there, literally, there are, some, there are some sicknesses that you don't give penicillin for because it's a bad deal. You don't give standard antibiotics. There's, well, I would normally give you this medicine, but no, we have to know what it is for sure to know which medicine I'm going to give you. How are we going to treat this? So, yes, we want to preserve the sinning member, but that does not mean we avoid calling out the sin. We must call out the sin, okay? So this is the sin, the, and, and we have to call it what it is, and then we want to bring them back, teach them, teach them, this is wrong, you must repent. And by the way, listen, if a person is a believer and they believe in Jesus Christ, they believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins, and another brother comes and says, brother, you're doing what Christ died for, the response of a believer, maybe they have to work through some pride, but the eventual response of any believer should be, Oh my, please forgive me. You hear what I'm saying? Not, whoa, you can't tell me, oh, I just can't believe it, and walk off the rest of your life mad because they got... That's not the response of someone who is a disciple of Christ. This is not someone who respects what Christ did on the cross for them. And when we approach someone, the hope is, is that we will be able to show them, listen, you're committing a sin that placed Christ on the cross, brother. You need to repent to this. You need to get this right. And the response of a believer ought to be, the response of a true disciple ought to be, and yes, I know, most of our first response is going to be, but the Holy Spirit's in there too, and over time there ought to be a little bit of, you're right, I was wrong. You hear me? The hope and the goal is restoration of the believer. John 13, 14, I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet. Ye also ought to wash one another's feet. You understand, you know what washing feet is, right? Oh yeah, that's one of those customs they did. Well, it's custom for a purpose. They walked out on the streets all day long and they walked amongst the world and their feet got dirty. 
So when they entered the house, they would wash their feet so they could, they could fellowship in cleanliness. They didn't bring the dirt from the world into the house. Do you hear what I'm saying? There's a reason that we have separation as a church, that we don't allow everything that goes on out there in here. Because the dirt from the world doesn't belong in here. And sometimes as humans, we naturally track it in because we're in the middle of it all the time. It's hard to avoid. One of the interesting things for us is, you know, we, we like watching movies at our house. We like watching TV shows and movies. But we have, a, we have this thing called clear play. So we ne- I don't have to see any nudity, and we hardly ever, if ever, hear any cussing or, I mean, even the Lord's name in vain. We just don't hear it. And, uh, of course, I'm a preacher, so I'm, most of my work's here. And it was interesting talking to a friend of mine who worked, uh, he worked a, a secular job, and he said, man, because we were talking about a certain movie that we had both watched, and I said, man, I, I was so glad we had clear play because, you know, I saw a few clips, and it was full of cussing. He said, it was? I said, yeah. He said, oh, man, that's bad. I said, why? He said, I'm, all I hear all day long is blank this and blank that and blank you and he says, he says I, I get washed. He says, I guess maybe, I mean, maybe I, you know, and he had to work out a way so that his brain and heart would start recognizing it a little bit more so that it didn't just take his own heart. It would just overlook it because what if a believer would, you hear what I'm saying? We, we get affected by something. That's kind of a simple way of looking at that, a simple way of looking at it. But we do bring, just because we're human, the, the dirt of the world rubs off on us and we, ha- we, the philosophies of the world, if you're in the middle of them all the time, you are picking them up. You are picking them up through, through normal interactions at work, through training uh, in various things that you would do, uh, through TV shows, through radio, through whatever it might be. Those philosophies get in there, and we are supposed to help each other clean those things away. The, the, and one of the ways we can do that is not by castigating each other, but trying to restore each other to a proper walk with God. Okay, James chapter 5. Turn to James chapter 5. We are literally at the very end here. James in chapter 5. And this this applies to several things, as you'll obviously see pretty quickly, but James chapter 5, go right to the end of the chapter. We're going to go to verses 19 and 20. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. You know that he's talking to the brethren. What's the hope there? Is that you convert one of your brethren, from the error of his way. Not that you convince him of the error of his way, just so you know that you're right and he's wrong. I mean, you have to convince him. This isn't a you're right, he's wrong thing. This is convert them. They're thinking this way, and you bring them to this. If any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. So the goal, listen, the ultimate goal and purpose of church discipline is to restore that person back to where he should be. Now you tell me, does it always happen that way? That's the goal. That's, that's the gold medal reach. Okay? Um, because humans are human, uh, we have pride, and only by pride cometh contention. 
contention. Only by pride cometh contention. Okay? And so there are some that will refuse to get right. They don't want to be called wrong. And listen, if you're a believer, being called wrong ought to be nothing new. That's how you got saved. That's, that's, you got saved by someone saying, you're going the wrong way, you need to go the right way. And admitting your wrongdoing, yes, right? That's what we call repentance. This is the wrong thing. I'm not doing this. This is get me nowhere. And the only right way is that being a Christian is kind of a whole lifetime of finding new areas where, nope, not supposed to do that. Wrong there. Fix that. Move this way by the grace of God. Amen. Thank the Lord. The chief consideration of all discipline, the chief consideration of all discipline is to correct the brother. Listen, a parent does not or should not discipline a child out of revenge or the the desire to inflict terror or fear or pain, okay? That's not the purpose for a parent. A parental discipline is not just revenge. That's why why when I teach guys, especially if you're getting into discipline, do not react out of anger. If you're reacting out of anger, then you just better send the kid to their room or send them to mom until you get a hold of yourself and then discipline. No reaction out of anger. You need to react out of facts. You should never react out of revenge. God doesn't react to, to us out of anger. He re, he's a God who can be angry but reacts properly. He reacts with love and grace, wanting to restore us or to inflict torture. Amen. The, the purpose of discipline is to, uh, Proverbs twenty twenty two six is to hopefully keep the child in the way he should go, right? Train up a child the way he should go and the way he's old do not depart from it. And to, according to Proverbs 23 is to preserve their soul from hell. And that, I mean, there's a purpose behind this. We want to train our children. We want to train them well. Well, it's the same thing with a brother. We don't, you just don't go in with a baseball bat and an angry attitude hoping to make everything better. Amen? Amen? Amen. The, the desire is always to restore the heart of that brother. Amen? And again, sometimes Matthew 18 does have to be carried all the way to the end, but that is the ultimate purpose. So to preserve proper doctrine to preserve church order against disorder, to preserve church purity. In other words, if there's open sin, it must be dealt with, otherwise more than one person will be affected. To preserve church unity. We don't want people coming in purposefully trying to cause a division in the church. To preserve church holiness. A church should be actively seeking to work together for God, not trying to lie and call it righteousness. And to preserve the sinning brother or sister. Amen. To preserve them, to preserve them from uh, literally their own destruction by God, in other words, the, the destruction of the f- flesh that the soul may be saved. I mean, that's just, that's no way to go. We want them to restore, be restored to active, good, functioning discipleship of Christ. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you very much for the day. Lord, I thank you.